Let's please open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, put one bookmark there, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, as you just heard the Greys read, and then also Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Put another bookmark there, digitally or otherwise. Uh, one thing to keep you all uh, in tuned on and aware of, we do have a members gathering tonight. And uh, contrary to our usual sort of routine rhythm and agenda, we are going to have El Patron tacos to the glory of God. So um, this is an important day for members, obviously. Um, we'll have that. We're going to share some stories over the past year about how God has been faithful in different stories in individuals' lives and families' lives. Um, and then also we're going to be commissioning five new deacons officially with our members tonight. So we're really thrilled, grateful to God uh, for that. And if you have about 10 or 15 minutes, uh, if you can come 10 or 15 minutes early, uh, pre-5 p.m., that would be really helpful to help us turn the room over there at Armitage Baptist Church. And for those of you who haven't been to a members gathering before but are now enticed by uh, the tacos, well, one, uh, you're welcome. And two, you're going to want to enter into the doors on Albany Avenue. So the, the Fullerton, or the, rather the Kedzie Avenue, address is uh, that where they are, but the Albany entrance is where we all go into the basement uh, space down there. So 5 p.m. tonight, 15 minutes earlier, if you can, so that we can get the room ready. Um, in one of my favorite authors, Malcolm Gladwell's most recent book, Talking to Strangers, he writes uh, things that we need to know about people that we don't know, people that we have not met before. And, and in it, Gladwell outlines a number of different principles and ideas about what it means to engage people for the very first time. One of those guiding paradigms he calls default to truth. This is our tendency to believe people, to trust them even before we've met them. Interacting with somebody for the very first time, we have this, what he describes is a default to truth. And this isn't just sort of an interesting a truism for us uh, as we interact with new folks. What Gladwell outlines in his book is that this is a basic building block for modern society. Here, here's what he says. He writes, to assume the best about another is the trait that has created modern society. Those occasions when our trusting nature gets violated are tragic. But the alternative to abandon trust as a defense against predation or deception is worse. He goes on to make the case that our default to truth enables communities to flourish or to even exist and thrive. Think about second-guessing a receipt and the tax that they calculated just because you didn't know who calculated it. Think about having to do that math. Some of you are incredibly brilliant and you do that already like on the spot, but for, for those whose numbers are terrifying to us, think about questioning those every single time. Think about assuming that someone was lying when you needed directions or when you asked them for some information as you bumped uh, next to them on the street in a new city. Think, think about a stranger on the train and looking at every stranger on the train going, they're out to get me today. I just know it. Like just not trusting anyone around you. We couldn't function. We, we couldn't live. We would be incredibly tired and we'd never get anywhere. See, Gladwell makes the case, the claim that to default to the truth, we do this because we have to. We do this because it's necessary to function. What I think he has observed through his book, and I think what you and I experience in our everyday life, is this beautiful, brilliant truth of the order in the way that God has made his world. There is something about our world which works when truth is prevailing, when truth is winning the day. God created a world that would thrive in and through truth. 
from systematic honesty of the seasons to the integrity of the rising and the falling and the setting of the sun, from that innate trust between a newborn child and their parent to the joy forged between a marriage in its 30th and 40th and 50th year after years of faithfulness, honesty, and integrity. Truth leads to flourishing. It's not a decision that we make. This is the nature of truth itself. It brings life. So if the world is built on truth, it means that when we lie, we do not simply deceive someone, we do not simply trick an individual, but we disregard and undermine the fundamental element of what social order and God's good design of creation is meant to be. We are dependent upon the truth, and yet we don't always tell the truth, which, which makes us need to lean in and ask why. Uh, this is timely for us to consider because let's be honest, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth has been at the very center of Washington just this week, of what does it mean to tell the truth? We're dependent upon a truthful outcome, regardless of the effect, regardless of the situation, the effect, and the outcome of this, the, whatever verdict takes place in Washington over this week and perhaps next is incredibly important to the flourishing and thriving of our nation. Research, though, has shown that through the years, we are less and less likely to tell the truth even under oath. Pulitzer Prize-winning author James Stewart wrote, the broad public commitment to telling the truth under oath has been breaking down. This came in his book uh, in 2011 called Tangled Webs, in which he reviewed the stories of people like Barry Bonds, Martha Stewart, and Bernie Madoff important and really landmark and famous situations where many people, many of these people had a ton to lose. Exception always lied under oath and they all did and they all lost a lot. There was a breakdown. See, deception always enslaves us, even people who look like they have all the freedom and all the reason in the world not to. Today we come to the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. Here God instructs his people not to lie, and yet despite the order of his word, the obvious goodness of telling the truth, the clarity of the command, the consequences that will come, and whatever we may have to lose, we still lie. And we need to lean in and deal with that. We need to understand what goes on in the human heart, what goes on in my heart and yours. You see, there is something, I think, that we don't quite trust about telling the truth. We don't trust the truth. This, I believe, is what God will make plain. As we consider the Ten Commandments, we'll look again at the Sermon on the Mount as we've done the past uh, number of, of weeks, and his truth, I trust, will set us free. So let's ask for his help as we come to God's word. Uh, Heavenly Father, none of us is coming to this word today um, as having figured it out. None of us are coming uh, as if we don't, no longer have a hunger or a thirst or a need. None of us is coming full and complete outside of you. We are all coming in need. We are all uh, attentive to your word because we are desperate to learn and to grow and to become who you've called us to be. There's not a varsity level in here to which the rest of us are trying to catch up. There's not a maturity that has been attained and therefore people more deserving of your grace than others. And so, Father, would we as a body, the body of Christ, would you work on us, grow us, develop us today? I pray muscles that perhaps have been ignored for a long time in our community, would you strengthen those today? I pray uh, things that have stolen too much of our attention, would you, would you take it back and put us on the right path, Father? 
I pray that even now, uh, perhaps we just want to be comforted today and perhaps uh, there is going to be some conflict in our soul. Uh, per- perhaps we know how heavy our sin is today. Would you, would you comfort us? We thank you, God, that your word afflicts us when we're comfortable and it comforts us when we're afflicted. What a beautiful grace your word is. And so we come to it. I don't, I don't come to it over it or next to it. I come like my brothers and sisters, totally under the authority of your word. So we ask that your word would perform, your word would accomplish what only it can, uh, your purposes, your will, your way. And so uh, make us more today and the people you're calling us to be. I pray you would humble me, help me to be clear, help me to be responsible with your word. And I pray for myself, I pray for my friends that as your word is proclaimed over us, that we, Father, would listen. We'd be still. We'd lay down our defenses. We'd confess our sin and know that you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Oh God, what a great joy and promise it is to know that one day, Lord Jesus, you will present the church to yourself without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, and we trust that you will be performing that purification work today in our hearts. So have your way in us, we ask, in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. As I mentioned, now we're coming to the ninth commandment, so look at it with me. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Immediately, there's some uncommon language here, and I think that uncommon language, particularly as it relates to that word witness, it draws our attention and puts us in a particular context, perhaps that we're not familiar with, or perhaps one that is less common to us. It's this legal context. See, in a courtroom, a witness is called to give an account for what has taken place. That's what it means to be a witness, someone who has heard, seen, said, experienced something, and now is being called to court to give an account of what they have heard, what they have seen, what they have said, what they have experienced. And in this specific context, God is commanding that his people, when they are in this kind of legal setting of bearing witness, that they are supposed to tell the truth. They should not bear falsely about what they know, about what they have experienced. In doing so, God lays out his legal expectation for his people. And think about, this is incredibly key, because in this particular moment in in history, there's no video and audio recording. There's no DNA test. There's no polygraph machines. Word was supreme. Word was what they had to depend upon when it came to relegating and regarding a particular case and trying to understand what really took place. And so what God is saying is that it is vital in every case, in every situation, that my people are truth tellers, that they do not bear false witness. The Lord's judicial process there is predicated upon his people bearing truthfully about what they have seen, what they have said, what they've heard, what they have experienced. All this being true, the specific language of the ninth commandment shifts a little bit in Deuteronomy's account, as Deuteronomy records it in chapter five. It's away from this specific legal uh, context and legal language and to a more general word for false and for witness. There's this general understanding that we should see that God's judicial claims or his judicial order should not simply be for the court system. It should be a more general understanding prohibiting us from lying in any context. God is not simply telling us, do not proclaim falsehoods in court. Don't do it anywhere. This this should not take place anywhere. Additionally, like the other commandments, outlawing, like heavily outlawed murder and adultery and stealing, this commandment is set within a covenant community. So he's saying, don't lie to each other. Be true, be real with each other. God's people 
We're not to bear false witness against one another. And the verse indicates even more than that, though, adding against your neighbor. This may strike us as odd, right? Because these are people who are close to us. These are people who we do life with. But as we've looked at through this series, we have a tendency to misuse, to mistreat, and in this case, lie to those who are closest to us. Those are the people who have skin in the game with us. Those are the people we don't think are going to go anywhere if we deceive them, if we uh, act inappropriately with them. So as we've considered, though, this is a, a command for God's people in an immediate context. This general reality in God's command towards truthfulness, though, isn't just about the commandments. Like everything else, we'll see a pattern throughout all of Scripture. God wants his people to be truth speakers. God want, does not want his people to bear false witness. So Exodus chapter 23, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man and to be a malicious witness. Zechariah 8. These are the things that you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Psalm 15. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. These are my people, he says. Proverbs 12, truthful lips endure forever. Colossians 3, verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The ninth commandment begins with this sort of legal prohibition against speaking falsely under oath, but then it extends to a neighbor. And then through the commandment, we see that this is a reality that should inform the character of God's people in every single setting in which they find themselves. Scholar T.E. Feintham explains the extension of the commandment to lying more generally, takes place early and includes any deception, any deceptive, slanderous, idle, empty talk about other persons. Neighbor, he says, equals anybody that would undermine their reputation or otherwise cast them in a bad light. Are you getting uncomfortable yet? This is really going to start zooming in on our own hearts and our own minds. See, as the Bible continues to explain the prohibition from Exodus, a general guiding principle continues to come in focus. Tell the truth, don't lie. Tell the truth, don't lie. Build up, don't tear down. Speak life, not death. Keep it 100, church, is what the scriptures teach us. Sin, though, interestingly enough, begins in false witness. So it's no surprise that we continue to struggle with this. What what I mean by that is that after God creates everything, he gives creation to our first parents, Adam and Eve, and then he gives them boundaries. You see, the order of the natural world, when we see light and dark, and we see these seasons, we see water and earth, that kind of order is not simply for the natural world, but the supernatural world as well. God creates clarity about what is good and what is righteous, obeying his word, and he speaks to the first couple in the clearest spiritual boundary that he possibly could instituted in the garden when he said in Genesis 2, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He says, you can eat the vegetables, you can eat the fruit that come from every tree. You can even eat the leaves. There's some kale probably in there somewhere, right? You can have that right now. You can blend it up, have some great protein shakes. You can have whatever you want, except this one tree. 
This is the clarity of God's words. It, it, it wasn't, it, it, there was no uh, questioning what he meant. He was very clear. Do not eat from this one tree, but everything else is yours to enjoy. That one's not for you. After this initial prohibition is delivered, though, Satan slithers along and he comes to the first couple. And in Genesis 3.1, here's what the writer records as the serpent speaks to Eve. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? If we read it too quickly, we'll miss it. And we often read our Bibles too quickly, don't we? Moving on to the next thing. But in a matter of moments, in a matter of words, Satan completely undermines the Lord. Not only does Satan outright question the word of God, but he doesn't refer to God by God's covenant name, a name that the writer of Genesis has been using through the first two chapters. He, he in other words, uses a name that is devoid of this covenantal language, Yahweh, the Lord. He doesn't speak to him with this reverence of relationship because religion always takes away the relationship. Religion always puts the rules at the forefront, suggesting that God is void of relationship with the people to whom he is leading and loving through his righteousness. Perhaps most obviously, he changes the words that the Lord spoke, though. See, freedom and generosity are front-loaded in God's edict. You may eat of every tree, he says, but one. Satan reverses the order, putting from any tree at the end. It makes it sound like God is instructing the couple not to enjoy anything. He twists the words just so. Satan also speaks directly to Eve, interestingly, to whom God actually delivered to Adam first. So he goes to Eve, not to Adam. And it's clear, K.A. Matthew states, the divine injunction in the mouth of the serpent was refashioned by Satan for his own interests. This, my brothers and sisters, is bearing false witness. Even quoting God, for his own purposes. This is why the evil one should be and is rightly known as the father of lies, that his native tongue is deceit and the treachery, regretfully, lurks in our hearts as well. See, tell the truth, don't lie, but there's more to it than that. See, the, after all, the, the issue doesn't just lie in not always telling the truth, but rather in our motivation for lying. See, Satan didn't just lie. He was trying to take glory and he was trying to take control. This is what Jesus begins to expose and really unearth for us in Matthew chapter five. So meet me there, please. Matthew chapter five, verses 33, 37. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you get to Mark, Luke, and John, go back to the left. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. Jesus now indirectly helps us to understand the true meeting, the depth of the meeting of the ninth commandment, although in, a, in an indirect way. Hear this, Matthew chapter five, verse 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Verse 36. And do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. We're not supposed to lie, we're supposed to tell the truth. But more than that, we're supposed, we are supposed to allow what we say to stand on its own. That our words would simply be the truth. 
we are supposed to trust that the truth is enough. In doing so, we'll refrain from reinforcing, this is what Jesus is getting at, reinforcing unnecessary unnecessarily with other claims and other promises. What Jesus is saying to his followers is that the truth on its own is powerful enough. It doesn't need all of your other agendas. The truth needs no collateral. But the reason that we believe we have to add these extra promises on top is because we don't believe that the world, our world, is built upon this truth. We are worried we won't be believed and we're we're fearful that the truth will not be enough to bring about our good and our flourishing. And in a kind of legal sense, we think we have to bring evidence to back up every word that we say because somehow we know our world is not, our word is not enough. The evil, the evil one has spoken over creation is a truth, a reality, or rather a lie about truth that the truth is not enough. And I think we still believe him. We're both right and wrong, I think, in our thinking about the way that we see the world. See, remember the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' kingdom ethic. He preaches as he sits on the hillside and people gather around him. And for three chapters in Matthew's gospel, Jesus explains the nature of his people in his world look like those who are submissive to his rule and reign. This is what his kingdom is. He paints a picture about reality, the way things should be in a context underneath his lordship. This means that some things will seem aspirational. Some things will seem too good to be true. The Sermon on the Mount, therefore, is not a statement of the earth as it is, but rather the earth as it increasingly will be as the things of this world become more and more like the things of heaven. That this world would increasingly become the kingdom of God, and yet the reality is it already is. See, we're even taught to pray for this in increasing measure. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we still may look around and see that mourners are not comforted. We may look around and see that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are not satisfied. We may think that the merciful are not being shown mercy, but they are, is what Jesus is saying, and they will be in the fullest sense one day. See, we may hear that Jesus says, trust the truth and feel though, that that doesn't work in this world. Like, like, this is a little too idealistic. You don't just need the truth. You also need some power. You need some collateral. You need to put something else to that. I, I wonder if I'm the only one who feels this way. It's a little messy, isn't it? I mean, many times we feel that the truth will actually lose something. It won't give us something. And it will become less. We won't actually become more. We'll become less secure if we allow the truth to prevail. We won't become more secure We feel less in control of something. We feel weaker when truth is prevailing. See, the truth can feel broken in this life for a time. But what Jesus is speaking about is a reality of the unseen world, the unseen realm becoming more and more the reality here in this world. The kingdom of God, we can say, is breaking into this world. So when Jesus teaches us to speak this way, he is talking about the way that things should be. This is not just a command about a promise of the way things will eventually fully and finally be in his kingdom. Namely, that our words will need no evidence and no added force one day. And even that the urge to to add things, to add weight to the truth will no longer be there. Our words will be enough. More specifically, the truth will be enough for everybody. One day that will be so. And what Jesus is instructing his disciples, his closest followers, live like that now. Though you feel this tension, though you feel this pain, though you feel this difficulty of the already but not yet, tell the truth. The truth is enough. The truth will win. Remember, 
This is set in that context and that, that sort of, uh, those pericopes, these, these stanzas of words that are the, you've heard it said and I say to you. Six different antithesis is what we call them. These antithesis statements in which Jesus is expounding upon the law and reframing it around the heart. Here in verses 33 through 37, we, we feel the same legal language, don't we, about taking oaths as we did with being a witness in Exodus chapter 20. 20. Look at verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. The word oath there means to swear. And in the ancient world, the degree of credence given to whatever someone would say was based upon the, the veracity or the power or the measure of which you were willing to wager what your word meant. In, in other words, swear by your wealth could be true. Swear by your kids or your parents, probably true. Swear by your gods, definitely true. Depending upon how much you were willing to swear by was believed to be, that's how voracious, that's how truthful, that's how honest these words are. In this case and culture, Christians therefore would be tempted to speak in a similar fashion, to speak in such a way that they would add force to their words. Still happens today, doesn't it? It's common parlance for us to say, I swear to God, or I swear on my life. It's why we have people in court, when they go to court, they put their hand on a Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's why when we bring people into office, they put their hand on the Bible as if to promise based on the credence and power of the Bible that they will perform all that they promise in office. We still add things to our words. We attach our words to something we deem more valuable than just words themselves, more than the truth itself, because we don't trust the truth. And Jesus' first listeners, as well as today, might be tempted to swear by heaven, by the earth, by Jerusalem, or by their own head is what Jesus is saying. And in each case, Jesus is telling them to speak and make promises, not this way. Why? Jesus' logic is, is attached to each particular situation based on God himself. Notice the sentence structure in verses 34 through 36. You can't swear by heaven. Why? Because that's God's throne. You can't swear by earth. Why? Because that's God's footstool. You can't swear by Jerusalem. Why? Because that's the King, King Jesus' city. You can't swear by your own head. Why? Because that's God's creation. He owns all of that. The principle here is that we can't swear things based upon God for our own devices and our own purposes or by our own will because all of that belongs to him. So Jesus simply says, don't make oaths at all. Here's how simple he makes it. Just say yes or just say no. How uncomfortable is that? For what I say and what I hear, because don't you want something from somebody else? What do you mean just yes? Like I'm reading the layer underneath the layer of the social anxiety that I feel and your character and my ability to understand the situation. We're trying to figure this whole thing out. We don't trust just a yes, do we? We don't trust just a no. Give me more than that. Jesus just says, my people, my kingdom people will say yes and they will say no. The reason, the truth, is enough is because the power of truth resides in the nature of God himself. Scripture teaches us that God himself is true. And when we say that God is true, I, I think we're saying at least four things. Let me, let me walk through four of these things that we are saying when we say that God is true, where our understanding and power and really our trust in the truth ought to come from. The first is that God does not lie. 
At the very least, when we think about God being true, we, we come alongside what the writer of Hebrews says is that so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purposes, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. See, when God makes an oath, he does not swear by anything. He simply says, I will be your God and you will be my people, period, Genesis chapter 17. I will never leave you nor forsake you, period, Deuteronomy 34. Surely I will be with you until the very end of the age, period, Matthew 28. He does what he says he will do and what he says is enough. When he says it, it's as good as done because God does not lie. He speaks facts. Secondly, God not only does not lie, but God is the source of truth. When we say that God is true, we're saying that he doesn't lie, and we are saying that God is the source of truth. This is clear in Isaiah chapter 45. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. North African theologian St. Augustine wrote on Christian doctrine. He says this, nay, but let every good and true Christian understand that whatever truth may be found, it belongs to his master. Whatever truth may be found, it belongs to his master. In other words, all truth belongs to God himself because all truth finds its inception from God's character. He is the truth's architect because he himself is the essence of truth. What is true must therefore be ultimately weighed against God and his nature and his character because he is the source of all truth. Thirdly, what we say when we say that God is true is that God reveals reality. God himself is an idea in personhood, is is ultimately the revelation of what is true. In in other words, what C.S. Lewis says famously, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. God does not just speak truth. He is not just the source of truth, but his presence and by his will, reality is exposed. This is why of all the metaphors in scripture that teach us about the nature of God's truth, light raises to the surface as one of the preeminent displays of this aspect of his being. See, because light reveals and it tells the truth. Jesus says in John chapter eight, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life because God reveals reality. Fourthly, God is also true because he's good. God is also true because he's good. Not just because he tells the truth, not just because he's the source of truth, not just because he reveals reality, but also because he's good. See, God's truth is not devoid of his moral purity. The truthfulness of God is not simply a consistent pattern of speaking facts and emanating virtue and revealing reality, but also at the level of the heart. God is true in that he is faithful. He is long-suffering. He is kind and compassionate and caring in the midst of darkness and difficulty. He is persistent in his goodness. 
This is hard to comprehend because these are two fundamentally different things to us. We separate the two regularly, but God is loving in that he is true all the time. And God is true in that he is loving all the time. This means that his motivations for speaking and revealing the truth are always pure and good. That when the truth shows up, the reason the Lord has brought that to the surface is for our good, not for our perishing and our demise. See, we can trust the truth because God owns all of truth. And he does not lie. He is the source of truth. By him, reality is revealed. And in all of this, he is good. He is good. He is good. Church, I wonder if you're hearing me yet. He's really good. See, his nature and his character exposes our lies. His truth exposes our lack of understanding, our disconnects from reality, our sinful motivations. And all of this exposes that we really trust the powers of this world and not the power of God's truth. Uh, This comes to the portion of the sermon where it gets most uncomfortable because we really need to zoom in now. And every time we zoom in to understand our hearts, it's that we might understand resurrection better. It's that we might understand grace and the gospel better, not for our demise, but that we might be clothed rightly when we realize we're naked. See, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Tell the truth, don't lie. Trust the truth. Seems simple, doesn't it? I mean, if we were just done with the message, now it would be quite religious. Just stop lying, go tell the truth, and God will be pleased. He will be happy with you. After all, God is truth, and his truth is good. But that sort of religious mindset isn't enough. We persist in deception and bearing false witness as a culture and individually. Because again, I I think our issue is not that we either don't know the truth, we don't speak the truth, but there is this motivation underneath us that doesn't quite trust or believe that the right control and power will be afforded to us if we're 100% honest or if we ask others for 100% honesty. See, we lie, don't we, to regain control. We lie to exercise our strength. We we, We deceive to hold on to power Let me see if I can break it down for us. I've I've come up with eight ways. I'm sure there's more. I'm guilty of each of these in a different regard. So it really just comes from my own spiritual formation. You're welcome as I literally just allow the Spirit of God to work on me for the next couple of moments. (laughs) Sit by and take notes. I go, wow, that dude's jacked up. You're welcome. Firstly, what the Lord, (laughs) I think, would say to us is that when we don't trust the truth, we present a digital image of ourselves to the world that is foreign to reality. It's not just a picture of us when we're looking good, right? I think that can be caricatured and dismissed pretty quickly, but it's never actually bringing confession. It's never actually saying that I'm imperfect and broken. It's always giving happy thoughts. It's always being happy and playing the high notes on social media. All the while, we are dying and broken and hurting and disengaged from real community that can help us. Continually broadcasting a particular image to the world while not dealing with the truth that resides in the soul, that's bearing false witness. We've actually never been more primed as a culture to bear false witness than when we have the post button on so many different streams. Ready to say, this is who I am. This is what it's like. This is what life is. And not actually being authentically broken or authentically vulnerable with our community. It also happens another way, if I can be so bold. I think it happens by bringing your problems to Facebook before you actually bring them to your brothers and sisters. That's also bearing false witness. 
It's acting like no one in your community can love you, help you, or meet a particular need. You first just say, this day is terrible, and then just wait for someone to say something. If your day is really terrible, hang out with somebody. Talk with a brother and sister who knows the truth of God's word, that they might cast light in that particular dark day, and you might see the truth of God and walk in the light as he is in the light. This is how we live and avoid false witness as it relates to social media. We trust a worldly principle that says, if I look good, I am good, when we bear that kind of false witness. Uh, Secondly, parents, I love you. Here's something I wrestle with. We don't trust the truth when we threaten our children with consequences we never intend to follow through on. It's hilarious until you do it every day. It's really funny when you think about, you're going to get a spank, or you're going to sit in a 17,000-minute timeout. But you find yourself doing that every day. You say, wow, I actually believe that my power is in threatening, not in discipling my child to know and love and follow and obey Jesus. I think that my power to get them to obey me is found in manipulation and threatening, not that their character can be transformed when their mind is renewed by God. See, that begins to bear false witness because I'm, I'm showing my children a kind of power that is not real. I'm showing my children a kind of threat, not my own character and my own brokenness and my own desire to see them follow and obey the Lord. Secondly, still for the parents that are a little bit tweaked, when, when we don't trust the truth, we parent with shame. I think this begins to really take place in the later years of parenting. Instead of communicating the truth of God's word, walking and discipling our children to the point that God has called us to, we bring up their shortcomings regularly. Or we only give them sort of religious edicts, but not an understanding of how his grace is sufficient for you as well when you fall short. We can shame our children to the point of believing that fear will transform their behavior and not God by his spirit. Fourthly, we'll go back to everybody now. We don't trust the truth when we leave churches because they keep bringing up our sin. Let it settle because this is hard for me. We leave churches because they continually bring up our sin or they expose parts of our story that we wanted to keep hidden. In other words, there is truth being exposed. There's there's things beginning to happen, but we trust this cultural principle of comfort and and our own perspective and our own feelings and make those things central. Now, what I'm not saying is that we have never erred as a church. Please don't hear this as therefore, whatever we say, just deal with it and stay. Like that's a real healthy community, right? But ultimately, I, I think that we bear false witness when we listen to everyone else's confession and we don't act like that's pulling up stuff for us. When we sit and most people in our group have confessed sexual addiction, have confessed eating disorder and and a frustration and a pang that in relationship with food or believing that they're constantly doubted by their boss or looked down on by men or looked down on by women and act like none of those things affect us, our silence even bears false witness. So instead of actually being vulnerable in that, I think often what we do is we just go to a different group or go to a different church where that kind of stuff just won't be exposed Fifthly, we don't trust the church. Don't just trust the church. That <laughs> was so dumb. Oh, help me, Lord. We don't trust the truth when we slander. We trust really the worldly principle that in order to lift myself up, I have to push somebody else down. I think particularly in the workplace, this can be prevalent. We may not do this with our neighbors in our community, but we may do this with the neighbors in our cubicles. 
may do those with men and women we think are vying for a particular place, position, and influence that we desire. And so little falsehoods can sneak from our lips because we believe that those things will be advantageous to get us what we really want. Six, when we trust the truth or don't trust the truth, we allow untruths about others in particular or even ourselves to persist in conversations and community. I catch myself doing this all the time, just to be real with you. When somebody says something about me that really wasn't me, but it was probably our elder team or my wife usually who had that idea or do that thing, I'll, I'll let you believe that was mine. That looks pretty good. I'll receive that. That actually wasn't, that's bearing false witness. I'm acting as though a particular thing that has been said about me, which I know is not true, to continue to build my character because I don't trust that God will build my character. We do this when we hear something evil about somebody or wrong about someone at work or in our neighborhood, and we don't speak up to say, actually, that's not true. I know that that's not true. I know that that's not true about that person. Because we ultimately believe that power, notoriety, fame is a zero-sum game, and the less that somebody else has, the more that I can get. We don't trust the truth. Seventh, we don't trust the truth, and so we gossip We trust the worldly principle that I have to stand out from others, that they are my competition. This is rampant in the church and in our church as well. And the reason why, and I know this this can be a challenge for, for me as an elder who has access and who has information about stories more than many others, Um, It can be easy to think that we're talking about somebody so that we can help them, but really we're just talking about somebody. So the question to always ask when you're talking about somebody, am I talking about them that I might go to them humbly? Am I I talking about somebody that I might go to them penitently, curiously, and in a forgiveness way, or, or for their good, that they might be lifted up, they might be helped? A lot of times we just talk about people, right? Am I preaching to you yet? Or is this one of those like uncomfortable silent amen moments? Like we're all guilty, but we're not gonna say anything? right? I think this is all of us. We talk about people all the time. And we just go, I was just messing around. I was just playing. I was just interested. I was just curious. I have all kinds of filler language. No, that's bearing false witness, church. It's bearing false witness because we're allowing things and ideas and things to be spread in our hearts and our minds around us because we believe that in order to stand out, I have to look at everyone as my competition, not as my sisters and not as my brothers. Lastly, at least on this list, we don't trust the truth, so we cling to partisanship. We don't trust the truth, so we cling to partisanship. In other words, we hide behind our particular political stripe, our political color, our political ideology, or even within different cultural subcategories. We hide behind those things and don't, are not inspired to understand the truth. We bear false witness in supposing that the other side is guilty in ways that we could not possibly fathom we could be. So in other words, we trust the worldly principle that to disagree is to hate. Because we have differing views, we must be opposed to one another. That is not biblical, that is evil, and it is part of this world, not a part of the kingdom that's breaking in. See, when we don't trust the truth, we bear false witness in a host of different ways. I know this is true in me. I know that this is prevalent in my own heart. See, through deception and even negligence toward the truth, we pursue earthly powers and controls to manipulate outcomes to our favor. The Lord considers false witness, by the way, as punishable by death. I give you Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, who gave generously but acted like it was everything, and they held back and they died on the spot. And so in many ways, 
We sit in a cosmic courtroom completely condemned. And our word is no good. We can't vouch for ourselves. In fact, in the ancient world, you could not have one person speak something. You needed at least two. You need at least two people to vouch for a particular person or an idea. So we need another voice. We need another witness. We need someone to speak the truth on our behalf. And it can't just be accurate. It can't just be factual. It cannot just reveal reality, but it needs to be good. In other words, the voice that we need to speak for us can't be guilty too. Who will speak for us? I think this is critical for us at Church in the Square as we're moving into our second year, now well into our second year rather, as a church. And in that second year, it's critical that we build trust. Not necessarily because trust has been broken, but we kind of like settle in after a year and just go, oh, this is what we're really like. Oh, this thing actually isn't gonna change. Oh, this thing's gonna change a lot. I don't know about that. What's going on? And so I I think the elders and myself, as I've bumped in and talked with different groups and group leaders, this is something that must be so critical for us that we build trust with one another because a church that is building trust with one another is lethal against the kingdom of darkness in Logan Square. A church that trusts one another, though we may not agree on everything, Lord knows we will not agree on everything. But that doesn't mean we can't trust each other. See, because when we trust each other, we go out into a dead and dying world that has beauty, that has wonder, that has the image of God everywhere, and we together can see his kingdom come more and more increasingly through his church. See, through deception, we get trapped. False witnesses are always end up enslaved. This is what happened to Adam and Eve. They're kicked out of the garden because of their participation in false witness. And therefore, the question for us is how, not how can I start telling the truth again, but rather how can I be freed? How can I be freed from believing that the powers of this world are more powerful than God and his truth? That's the real issue underneath the issue. This distinction is really important. I don't just need to start telling the truth again. I need to be freed from the powers I trust. I trust my own control, my own ability, and therefore my guilt is much more complex than perhaps at first blush. So we need to consider John chapter eight. Turn with me, John chapter eight. This is a famous uh, scene where Jesus speaks on behalf of a woman caught in adultery, and it's the ensuing conversation that he has with the religious leaders of the day. So look at verse 13. He opened up telling them that he was the light of the world. And here's how the Pharisees respond in verse 13 to Jesus' claim, again, after the aftermath of him saying, uh, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Everybody walks away, and he tells the woman, neither do I condemn you. So the Pharisees say to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony... It's not true. See, remember, according to Jewish uh, law, Jesus needed another witness to make such a claim. Now, now we would have to go out and find somebody, but here's, here's Jesus' response. Jesus responds in verse 14. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Contextually, that's crazy. Like he's literally defying all of these made up principles within the Jewish con. This is what he's saying. And here, here's how he continues verse 14. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. I think his voice has probably turned something like that. Verse 15. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment's true. 
For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me also. Jesus says this incredibly compelling thing, not only legally in the first century, but identifying himself. He says, I'm enough to be my own witness, but I got God the Father too, just in case you needed more information. I can bear witness to myself, Jesus says. What he is saying is, I am the light. I am the truth. What I say is the unadulterated word, the unaided word, a word that needs no qualification, no oath-making, no added promise, no swearing by this or by that, no added sugar, no added preservatives, non-GMO, no other ingredients necessary. Just his word. Are you with me at church? Just his word. They didn't get it. I often don't. Look at that. Their response is, uh, who are you? Who are you? Jesus answers in verse 25. So move your eyes down to verse 25. Still in chapter eight. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. <laughs> like, Jerry, have you been, have you been listening? I, I have much to say uh, about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. He who is speaking is the son of God. The one who has been with the one true God from the very beginning, that's, that's who he is. You can trust him because he is the Lord. You can trust him because that's where he comes from, because that's who he is. You, you can trust because he has no false witness in him. You don't have to bear false witness, but you can trust in the Lord through Jesus. After all, he is the word incarnate, the word made flesh. He, he, is, he is the one so... Uh, true to his promises that he is willing to bring that truth to bear by giving his own life. He didn't add conditions. He gave himself. And in his dying, he vanquishes the power of the world. He dismantles the darkness itself so that his truth is more sufficient than anything else to free us. He is true and he is good. He doesn't lie. He's the source of truth. He reveals reality and he is good. See, if Jesus was just true, then we would just know about our sin. But because he's true and good, we can be forgiven of our sin. In the same address, Jesus explains the effect that this truth ought to have on a community of people or on us when we trust the truth. Look at verse 31, still in John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth frees us. Jesus himself frees us from the lethal bondage of falsehood, of believing that I have to deceive in order to be in control and to be in power. That means that as a kingdom people, we are called to be, are made to live as free people by living in accordance with the truth. When we trust the truth, we don't lie we actually continually learn to be honest. Not because we have different information, but because we have a new heart. When we trust the truth, we don't have to threaten and shame our children. We shape their hearts with the same truth that has shaped ours, revealed to us through his word, that it's for our good as well as it is true. When we trust the truth, we don't need to gossip or slander. We know that we are all a mess and I have nothing to say about anybody that isn't true about myself. We have no reason or need to 
elevate ourselves, but actually we will consider others as more important than we are. When we trust the truth, we don't leave churches or groups because they expose sin. We actually look for churches that are willing to. We look for brothers and sisters that are willing to. When we trust the truth, we won't cling to partisanship. We'll trust that the invisible hand of God is constantly, consistently, and graciously guiding all things. We're not just freed by the truth so that we refrain from bad behavior. As if to say, Jesus frees us, so now we're not gossips or slanderers or post unrealistic pictures on Instagram. No, we're freed and changed into different people. We become new. We no longer trust and love and hope in false powers and false dynamics in this world. We not only refrain from bearing false witness, but we become children of light. And the resurrected Lord, as he is ascending to the right hand of the Father, he looks at his earliest followers, and do you know what he calls them? He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. Somebody say witnesses. Witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What does he call us? He calls us witnesses. Who else can take a false witness and make them into gospel witnesses? Only God. Who can take a self-promoter and make them praisers of the God of the Bible? Only God. Who can take uncommitted people and ground them in the gospel? Only God. Who can take gossips and make them gossipers of the gospel? Only God. Who can take the anxious and give them peace? Who can take those who lust for earthly power and give them strength and weakness? Who can take someone gripped by fear and overwhelm them with trust. Only God can do that because God doesn't just give us new habits of telling the truth. He gives us a new nature of being a witness as a child of light. And so now you can trust the truth. Go be witnesses. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, ever since that original sin, we have all been tempted to take back control through deception. I know this is true in my own heart. I often live that way with my family, with my church, my immediate surroundings and community, so forgive me, Father. Cleanse me of a guilty conscience. Lead me in the way everlasting. I pray that for my brothers and sisters as well. Would you make us not just a truth-speaking church, but a church that walks in the light? Because we know that when we walk in the light, As you, our God, is in the light, we'll not only have fellowship rightly with each other, but with you, and that's our good. Our good is that we are in relationship with you. So have your will, have your way in us. May your kingdom come, your will be done, right here in Church in the Square, in Logan Square, in Chicago, and to the ends of the earth as it is in heaven. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.